Father, we praise you for this morning. You've been so kind to us to give us another Lord's Day to meet together, to enjoy the ministry of the Word and to enjoy one another in fellowship and personal ministry to each other. I pray, Father, that that would happen in abundance today and that as a result there would be born much fruit. And so we give you praise for what you're going to do this morning. Lord, we repeatedly pray with the elders in the morning, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain who build. And so, Father, build your house. Um, grow your vine. Grant that we would, we would be able to see true gospel growth in depth and, if it would be your will, in breadth as well. We also pray for Living Hope Bible Church this morning as they begin their meeting. I pray, Lord, that you would use Brent to speak your word with boldness and clarity and that you would bring people who have not yet been to that church to be, uh, to be visiting today and perhaps to become a part of that fellowship. And so be glorified in them. Lord, thank you for everyone who's here. I pray that you'd make our time profitable in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, this is um, a wonderful privilege for me to be able to teach in Sunday school. I haven't done this in a long, long time, and, uh, and I kind of miss it. I like the interaction, and so that's kind of a hint. I want there to be some interaction this morning, and I'm going to ask some questions along the way if I can remember to do so, and time permitting, and just want you to be involved in this. Uh, of course, as you know, <clears throat> we, um, uh, the reason that I'm, I'm doing this is because the elders really wanted me to emphasize how important uh, our small group ministry is, and that we want you all involved in it, and not just the small groups themselves, but the whole concept of community. What does it mean to be in community together as a church, rather than just coming and showing up and, and sitting and soaking in the pew? Um, what does it mean to, to uh, engage in true community? And there's a lot to learn here, I think, uh, both didactically from the scriptures and experientially as we in, begin doing this together on Sunday evenings here for the next eight weeks. Um, next eight weeks, except for July 4th weekend, just so we're clear on that. Uh, so a few weeks ago, we included in the bulletin an insert that was designed to answer some questions about the small group ministry, and uh, that sheet began with this question. Why should we start a small group ministry now? Why start small groups now? And the answer that we offered is, and I'm just going to read this to you uh, to get it right. This was what was in the bulletin announcement or bulletin insert. It said, the birth of Living Hope Bible Church is a gift from God that has brought to light a critical need in the Calvary family. We need each other more than ever. We need biblical fellowship and true community. In the New Testament, gospel growth is always produced by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Word in the context of Christ-centered relationships. And we believe creating a network of home small groups this summer will provide the fertile soil in which the seeds of biblical community can flourish and bear much fruit. That's why we're doing this. We just think we can do better with community. We can develop relationships better in a large group than we can in a small group. And frankly, it's the elders' conviction that small groups need to be a priority, not only of every church's life, but every believer's life. There ought to be a group of people, or at least a couple other people in your life, 
with whom you fellowship, with whom you pray, with whom you minister, the people who uh, you have freely opened your life to and invited them to step into it and perhaps to say things that you need to hear, words of encouragement, words of correction, words of exhortation, whatever is needed. The scriptures frequently underscore the centrality of relationships in the body of Christ. J.I. Packer writes this, we should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercise of private devotions. Fellowship is one of the great words in the New Testament. It denotes something that is vital to the Christian spiritual health and central to the church's true life. The church will flourish and Christians will be strong only where there is fellowship. Now, don't misunderstand. I think there are areas in the Christian life where you can be strong apart from fellowship, like in theology. You can really be a strong theologian and really know doctrine and not have any fellowship in your life. And that would be no good. Because you may know theology and not be growing in Christ-likeness. You may know theology in increasing measure and not be a better servant of the body of Christ. Um, I know what, what, what I need in order to be more like Jesus. I need you. And I, in particular, need a few of you men speaking into my life and ministering to me in practical ways. But here's the problem. Genuine fellowship isn't practical in a large crowd of people. For example, last week, okay, so, so follow the thinking on this. In, uh, in February, we were toying with the idea of, uh, or January, we were toying with the idea of going to one service, which we now have. And uh, part of the equation there in making that decision was, okay, so how many people do we have showing up on Sunday morning? Twice a year, we look at that number, and uh, the number came back to us, 245. Uh, we got more people than that uh, at Calvary Bible Church, a lot more. But on the average Sunday, that's how many of them show up, about 245. And we thought, well, that's great. We've got 245 seats in the chapel, and we're losing 50 people, so lots of wiggle room. And last week, 317 people showed up <laughs> for our first one-service service. service. Um, who has known the mind of the Lord, right? So here's the problem. Um, Fellowshipping with 317 people is virtually impossible. Now, you can do other things. You can engage in other personal ministry, and there is some level of fellowship that you can enjoy. Obviously, our worship service, however, is even though it's central to our church, worship service is not the best place to build strong relationships and to exercise the one another commands of Scripture. They are commands. The one another commands. Um, as Americans, we love our rugged individualism. One of my favorite Farside cartoons, I think it was Farside, uh, showed a, a man who was on a deserted island, and uh, uh, the Navy or some rescue boats came to that island, and they got off the ship, and they approached him, and, and he said, oh, I'm so glad you guys are here. I've been stuck on this island for years. And, and the rescuers got looking around, and they, they, and they saw on the hill two structures. Uh, apart from his hut, there were two structures on the top of the hill. And they said, uh, well, well, what's that building up there? And he said, uh, well, that's my church. Okay, he's the only guy on the island, right? And they said, well, what's that other structure? And he said, oh, 
that's my, that's my old church. <laughs> Couldn't get along with the people over there. And, you know, you've heard the old, the old adage, uh, the church would be fantastic if it weren't for the people. Well, the power of the gospel actually comes through the people as we minister the word of God to one another. For my sanctification, I need people ministering the word of God, and so do you. We need a place where we can spend time together and get to know each other at a level that is deep enough to affect one another's relationship with the Lord. In other words, we need community. Uh, we're over at Jason's house this week um, for some hospitality. They were, they were doing the hospitality, and we were enjoying it, my family. And uh, the occasion was my son Andrew and his wife, um, Allie, uh, we're in town, and uh, so we all had dinner over there. And, and at the end of the service, uh, Jason looked over at Andy and Allie and said, uh, So, Andy, um, how has God been demonstrating his grace to you in the last few months? That led into some great conversation. And I thought, that was a great question. <laughs> Say that again. I've used that since then, just to get involved in each other's lives, just to provoke conversation about the goodness of God. We need community. Now, I've given you a set of notes, and I hope you all have them. They are very sketchy notes, because I designed them for the small group meeting discussion, and so there's not a lot on there. There's going to be a lot more in what I say here, so feel free to take as many notes as possible. Uh, as, as you want, but when you get to your small group, just know that it's going to be about a 30-minute, 30, 30 to 40-minute conversation. We're not going to be able to del delve into all the things that I have for you today. We may not be able to even do all of that this morning, but uh, we're going to give it a try. So here's the question, what is community? What is community? Well, of course, you probably already know this, but the biblical term for community, the Greek word for community is koinonia. Everybody say that. Koinonia, so now you know a little Greek. Uh, koinonia, um, definition for koinonia, here's a few, uh, and you can write this in your notes, I think. Uh, definition, here's, here's some uh, words of definition. Participation, partnership, sharing, and of course, fellowship. And all of that equals community. Participation, partnership, sharing, fellowship. And you combine all of that and what you have is community. Let's look at some biblical usages. Acts chapter 2. I'm just going to read a good section here. Acts chapter 2 beginning with verse 37 and we really want to key in on the last verse and we'll actually look at this a couple of times this morning. Uh, my Bible entitles this the in-gathering. So we had 120 people in the upper room, and now, uh, you know, at one time we were really wrestling with growth problems here at Calvary Bible Church because uh, there just wasn't enough space, and which is why we're in the building we're in now. Um, but our growth problems were nothing compared to what the apostles faced in Acts chapter 22, they, or, or chapter 2. They went from 120 people to uh, 3,120 at the end of one sermon. That's never happened at the end of any of my sermons. But <laughs> So Acts 2, you should be there by now, uh, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, this is Peter's sermon, 
They, that is the Jews, were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? I mean, they'd just been confronted by the reality that they crucified the Son of God. Brothers, what must I do? What must we do? And Peter said, repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received the word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves, here we go, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now there's simple structure. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, that's koinonia, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now we're going to come back to that text, but turn with me to 1 John. That's one very famous usage of this, uh, this term, koinonia. 1 John 1, 3, here's another one. 1 John 1, 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have what? Fellowship, koinonia, with us, and indeed our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, what do you notice about these two passages relative to the, the priority of mutual fellowship? What do you notice here? These two entirely different texts dealing with koinonia. And yet there's a common theme here. Fellowship is listed first. Okay, good. And what does that tell us? What might it suggest? I'm sorry? It's priority. This is huge. I mean, the Acts 2 passage, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Okay? That's one aspect of koinonia. And yet here is another it's the exact same word, but a totally different idea of fellowship here in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 1. He's not talking about us fellowshipping with each other, you know, in small groups. He's talking about something else. Just think about that. Four dimensions of fellowship. Four dimensions of koinonia, or four ways to understand um, this term Koinonia, fellowship. So here's number one. Relationships. Relationships. And of course, this is, this is what we think of first. Relationships. Koinonia is a relationship. It's not an activity. It's not a church program. You know, one of the implications of that is you could show up at your small group tonight and not have koinonia because koinonia is not a program. It's not an activity. It is basically a community relationship. The believers in Acts chapter 2 were devoting themselves to relationship. 
The relationship they shared consisted of sharing the very life of God through the indwelling spirit. The early believers realized that their fellowship with God brought them into fellowship with one another. They became fellow members of the same body, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, we're going to talk here in a, in a minute about the different analogies of the Word of God, and we'll do, we're going to do this eight weeks, so I'm not going to try to squeeze it all here this morning, but they became members of the same body, and they were living stones put into the same spiritual house. So we have the analogy of the body, and 1 Peter 2 gives us the analogy of the spiritual house, which is really the temple. So how is God building his temple? He's building his temple with living stones, and who are the living stones? Well, the personal pronoun gives it away. It's, it's us. It's us. We are the living stones. And so here is this temple, and why temple? Why household in reference to temple? What was unique about the temple, unlike any other structure on the planet? What was it? What? Oh, boy. I think you all said the same thing, but it sounded like tongues, which is appropriate for Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> it's where God's presence was. This is the house of God. This is where God resides, and he still resides in the house of God, only it's not a building made of bricks and mortar and, and stones. It's a building made of living stones. And, and that means you and me. That means Danny Jones. And that means Russ Dar and Deborah Dar and Antonia and Anita and, and, and Jesse and all of you guys. If you know Christ, you are the dwelling place, collectively, the dwelling place of God. That's magnificent. You think our relationships ought to be a little bit deeper than, hey, how are you? Good to see you. How was is, how is your week? Fine. I was talking to a, a counselee recently, somebody I was uh, counseling for a significant period of time. And, and in counseling, I mean, okay, well, how's it going? And they, they go into all you know, the details of their week or whatever. And I saw them in church one Sunday, and I said, hey, how are you? And they went, do you mean... <laughs> I mean, how are we, or do you mean, fine, how are you? And I went, fine, how are you will be fine. <laughs> In order to really understand fellowship, koinonia, we need to know something about our union with Christ. Okay, so can we get just a little theological this morning? Our union with Christ. I think when we think about fellowship, we don't think this. And this is foundational. If the people are the stones that build the temple, Christ is the foundation. He is the unifying factor to it all. Our union with Christ is the beginning of everything. The meaning of relationship really, listen to this, everybody look at me for just a second, all eyes up here. The meaning of relationship has less to do with your experience of relationship with one another and far more to do with the objective reality of the relationship you have because of Christ. Because of Christ. The dictionary defines relationship as a condition or fact of being related. Um, my wife grew up on a, on a wheat farm in Kansas 
the closest town, just a few miles away, several miles away, and uh, has a little blinking amber light, kind of like uh, Radiator Springs. <laughs> uh, and, um, and my kids always say, you know, whenever we go to town, we go to the one, one eating establishment, it's Carolyn's, she's a Mennonite, and, and she's got a monopoly on the town. If you want to eat in, in that town, you have to eat there. And uh, my kids always say, you know, it's such a strange thing. Every time we go to Carolyn's, I meet relatives. <laughs> my wife's whole family tree is there. There are people that we're related to. In fact, this time we were up there uh, for my mother-in-law's funeral, and we just drove through the town, and we saw these children, or uh, these young people, standing on the corner getting ready to cross the street. And I said, look, children, there's your relatives. <laughs> and they said, how do you know? Uh, because they, they live in Arlington. Um, you are related to some of these people. You don't know. It's an objective reality. A man and wife, for example, for example, are in a unique relationship with one another, whether their experience of that relationship is good or not. It is an objective relationship. It is an objective reality. You are related to one another. You are related to one another either by blood or by marriage. And the marriage should even be stronger. In a similar way, all believers are related to one another in the sense that we share a common life in Christ. We are related by blood, spiritually, the blood of Jesus Christ. If you know Christ, I mean, look at the people around you. You are related to them. This whole thing about first service, second service, I know there are people in our church that we don't know, you know, all of that stuff, you may not know them, but if they're in Christ, they're your brother and your sister and your mother and your father. You have an objective relationship with them. Our experiential relationship with one another must grow out of our objective relationship. And listen to this. Only those who are in fellowship with one another, that is the objective fact of the relationship, only those who are in fellowship with one another can have fellowship with one another, Jerry Bridges says. I agree with that. Only those who are in fellowship with one another in Christ can have fellowship with one another. I mean, you can have a good relationship with another person and not enjoy fellowship and not really be in fellowship. You can enjoy some subjective experience even with an unbeliever but not be in fellowship. This is not only the most basic concept of fellowship with one another, it's also the most basic concept of fellowship with God. And that's what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 1. We have an objective relationship with God. We must have an objective relationship with God before we can experience fellowship with him experientially. In other words, we must first be united to Christ by saving faith before we can have fellowship with him on a daily basis. And try as you will. You may even think you are having fellowship with Jesus. But if you are not in fellowship with him objectively, you cannot fellowship with him experientially. Make sense? Bridges writes, true fellowship embraces both the objective and the experiential aspects of our relationship with God. Sometimes this distinction is referred to union and communion, and I think that's helpful. That's what we're really talking about here. Union and communion. 
Union is the objective fact. We are united in Christ. We have union in Christ. Communion is what we experience with one another and with Christ as we do. Uh, take a moment with me and, and uh, look at 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9. Let's get a little context here. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Notice in Christ Jesus, we'll talk about that again. That in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you in the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into what? Fellowship with who? With his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Fellowship with his Son. Now, I realize uh, that... Uh, a lot of people use this verse to talk about communion rather than union. And I would submit to you that what Paul is speaking of here is union, not communion. By communion, I mean uh, sometimes, and uh, Bridges points this out, sometimes as you're discipling someone, you might go to this verse and say, what you really need to do is you need to have communion with Christ. And, and how you do that is through prayer and through the scriptures and through, uh, your, uh, uh, through church and, you know, using the means of grace. That's how you have communion. But that's not what he's talking about here, is it? Uh, Paul's talking about the fact that God has savingly called us into fellowship with his son, and by the way, according to verse 8, this unique objective relationship is the ground of our insurance, assurance, not insurance, sorry, <laughs> our assurance when we stand before him. Watch this, look at verse 8. Uh, Awaiting eagerly, verse 7, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you in the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship. So whatever this fellowship is, it has everything to do with whether or not God will find you blameless. This is not communion. This is union. Are you in Christ? Do you belong to him by grace, through faith? Are you in that objective relationship that you can only get by having been given it by God's grace? There must be union before there is communion. We cannot enjoy the experience of true fellowship with each other unless we first share the common life of Christ. And you know why when, uh, when we travel out of the country or, you know, you just travel down the road and go to another church. One week, uh, my wife and I were on vacation. We decided not to leave town after all. We did a little staycation. staycation. And on Sunday, we didn't want to, especially my wife didn't want me to be here. And, and you know, if I'm here, uh, you know, ministry's happening, right? I mean, in my life, people were coming to me. And, and so we decided, let's, uh, let's just really take this weekend off. So we went to Granbury. And we went down to... Um, uh, Terry Ann's church and um, uh, Keith Palmer. 
And, uh, and you know what? We had the sweetest communion with these people that we really didn't know very well by name. And the reason for it was we are commonly in union with Christ. That's where we get the idea of our brothers and sisters, even overseas, even in Kazakhstan and Tajikistan and, and in, in, uh, in you know, Japan and China and South America and Africa, when we find believers, there's already objective union. So experiencing communion is easy. Now, um, so again, what Paul is not talking about here is uh, sharing common goals, sharing common purposes that make us a community. Rather, he's talking about a fact, the fact that we share a common life in Christ. So, the first dimension of fellowship is relationship. And it isn't relationship necessarily with one another. That's not first. The relationship, first of all, is with Christ. Okay, any questions about that? Any comments? You want to add anything to that? That's good stuff, isn't it? Um, I would challenge you to grab a good systematic theology and just, just study out communion with Christ. And we're going to look at that some more here in a different way. So the first dimension of fellowship is relationship. Secondly, second uh, element of fellowship, koinonia, is partnership. And just a minute or two on this, koinonia is often used in ancient Greek to refer to a business partnership. Um, Peter, James, and John were partners in fishing, uh, Luke 5.10. Paul says that he was in partnership. And by the way, uh, each one of these cases, uh, the term is koinonia. You just have to you have to uh, translate it and interpret it according to the context. So he's talking about something different than union with Christ now. He's talking more in terms of a partnership. So Paul said that he had communion with the uh, brothers in in Philippi or Philippi. Um, And Philemon, he was his partner in the gospel. We were a partner. We had a, a partnership, Paul would say. It means we're in ministry. We're co-laborers in Christ. We are out for common purposes, common goals. And so we're partners. And so whereas relationship describes a believer's community, partnership describes community in action. Now, what does community in action look like, biblically? What is community in action? Somebody raise your hand so we, we, we can do this in an orderly manner. Yes. <laughs> Okay, service and building up the body of Christ. Okay, good. Um, I wouldn't say individual, though. Not for partnership. We're working together. Be like you and your wife ministering to the college group, which you do. How often? Every month. Uh, so there, him and his wife, they have a, an objective relationship. Obviously, they're married. But they also have a partnership. So there's a different element of their They're koinonia. They're actually partnering for gospel growth in the lives of these college students who come to their home. What's another example of of partnership? Guys that go downtown. It's a team. They go downtown uh, for 4SG and they share the gospel with people. Okay, beyond that. Yes, Phil. I see that hand. You can come forward. 
Okay, the ministry, the counseling ministry. And the counseling ministry is designed to be a partnership so that uh, if, if you ever come for counsel, it's, you are going to have two counselors in there um, if, uh, if everything works out right. Uh, what else? Uh, listen, we, uh, yesterday, oh, Anita. Single serving, a, a, a group of single ladies who are just out to find uh, what material needs are, are, uh, are happening in the church and uh, meeting those needs. I got a call from Shannon Hurley yesterday from Uganda. Uh, we partner with him. And how do we do that? We send money. That's right. <laughs> That's right. For which he is extremely grateful. Um, so this is, a, this is partnership. Um, and so here's what we like to say about Calvary Bible Church, um, our mission, sort of our, our purpose. We exist to proclaim the, can you say this with me? We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. That's why we're here. We partner together to proclaim that Christ is excellent in everything. Uh, I saw this. I mean, you can do this individually. When I went to visit, visit Eddie Whiting the other night, at, I was telling at the funeral yesterday, um, when I went to see him on Sunday night, so a week ago, um, I walked into his room, and he looked like he was kind of in and out, and, uh, and he, was, he was really doing badly physically. And I walked in, and I said, Eddie Whiting, how are you doing? And he said, he, looked, he opened his eyes, and he says, I'm dying which he did. And then he said, but God is good. You know what he did? He told the truth as he knew it. I am dying. And then he proclaimed the excellencies of his God. God is good. Um, so that's why we exist. We do this in partnership with each other and with other churches. Um, and, and you know examples of that. This kind of fellowship with others is the perfect place to discover certain things. What do you think? <clears throat> what can you discover while you're in partnership with other believers? That kind of koinonia. Deborah. Okay, you can discover people's needs. Good. What else can you discover? Myra. Discover something about yourself. What can you discover about yourself? <laughs> okay, you find out if you're a lazy bum. <clears throat> Okay, but that, that's actually the direction I was going, not the lazy bum part, but uh, what can you learn about yourself? Your giftedness. How has the Holy Spirit gifted you to serve, to partner with other people? Um, it's a perfect place to, to discover and use your spiritual gifts. As you partner with other believers to promote the gospel and build people up, you would discover things about how God has gifted you for service in ways that you may never have considered. So that's partnership. When we have relationship, koinonia, relationship with Christ, koinonia, partnership. Number three is communion with others. Communion with others. Communion with one another is all about sharing with others the spiritual riches we have received from God. Which takes me back to Jason's question the other night. Uh, nothing wrong with saying, what'd you think about, you know, the Ranger game? There's nothing wrong with saying, you know, how's your team doing in Final Four? Or, um, 
you know, talking about your kids or, or whatever. <clears throat> but I loved the question. How has God been gracious to you in the past week? Um, or, uh, what has God been teaching you in his word this past week? We often use the term communion to refer to the Lord's table, and certainly that is a communion. But in the book of Acts, it frequently refers to communicating intimately or sharing with one another on a close personal and spiritual level. It might be sharing from the scriptures or offering encouragement from one believer to another. It might be offering a gentle exhortation or correction. It's sanctification. This is where the rubber of sanctification meets the road of a person's soul. The key element is that the subject matter is focused on God and his word and his works. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing what? One another. With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It's a ministry to one another. It's not just socializing. It's not just free food. We're having a fellowship. Well, that remains to be seen. First of all, are you in fellowship? And secondly, what kind of, what kind of communication will you have when you are in fellowship? That will really be the determining factor as to whether it's true fellowship or not. Once again, G.I. Packer writes, it is first a sharing with our fellow believer the things that God has made known to us about himself in hope that we may thus help them to know him better and so enrich their fellowship with him. You know, one of my delights in ministry right now is to see the interns growing in their depth of understanding of the word of God. And these guys, you poke them, they are going to bleed Bible and theology. We have these guys come and, and do devotional for the elders, and uh, this morning my son Calvin did it, and uh, it's such a delight for me to, to see him and, and know John as well uh, is just uh, devouring the Word of God, devouring theological works, and just feeding their soul on the rich, deep truths of God. And, uh, and Karen, too. She's up at Word of Life studying Scripture, aren't you? Sorry, Karen, you can... You can smack me later. Um, Acts, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Because Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that same passage we were at a little while ago, if I can find it. <clears throat> Acts 2.42 tells us that the believers in Jerusalem were devoting themselves to this kind of fellowship. Because there was union in Christ, remember 3,000 people had just come to know Christ, their souls, they were born again, they were saved, they were brought into communion with God and therefore communion with the saints. Uh, we have that, uh, the church is one foundation, remember that song? There's a, there's a phrase in there that talks about mystic, sweet communion. <laughs> That's not new age. He's the, the author, and I don't remember who the composer was of that song. He's talking about the communion that you have, that really the union that you have with other believers from which true communion takes place. Um, Acts 2 tells us 
about that communion that takes place as a result of the union. Believers in Jerusalem devoted themselves to fellowship. In other words, they couldn't get enough of the teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. And by the way, I take that breaking of bread. It can be one of two ways. Breaking of bread may be the Lord's table, or it might just be supper. It might just be a meal. It may have been, uh, at least there for a while until Paul called a halt to it, the love feast. Problem was they were misusing that. It wasn't something the Lord established. They thought it would be a good follow-up to the Lord's table, considering they were at a meal when it took place. And but there were there were some bad things happening. The rich people were coming early because they didn't have to work so much. They were bringing a lot of food and they were eating it before the poor got there. And they were calling, causing disunity in a place where the community should be uh, enjoying true fellowship. And and all of that was happening. But. When the church exploded into existence in chapter 2 of Acts, they really didn't have any systems. They didn't know what they were doing. They were just being led by the Spirit. And they just couldn't get enough of meeting together for the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. By the way, these were Jewish Christians, this first century church, the the original church. These were pretty much all Jewish people who grew up learning about the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the Word of God. But when they met and they listened to the apostles' teaching, they began to understand the Scriptures in ways they never could have imagined previously. Everything began to make sense. For the first time in their lives, they were understanding Scripture because it all pointed to Christ. This is true fellowship, sharing with one another what God is teaching you through Scripture, how God is changing you, and it's an important part of all true community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his compelling little book, Life Together, writes these words. God has put this word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks to the others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. It was no mistake that Jesus, it wasn't by accident that Jesus sent out his disciples into all the villages, how? Two by two. You know, I've traveled, we were talking about uh, missions this morning and and an opportunity uh, that I've been given to go down to, Shannon Hurley asked if I'd come down and uh, there was a a really good preaching pastor who was supposed to go down and and teach and, uh, and he bailed, so Looks like it's B team for me. <laughs> but they asked me to come down. And, uh, and I love to do that. But you know what? I hate traveling alone. I don't want to travel alone. 
I was talking to the elders about that this morning. Look, there are, there are just practical concerns and there are spiritual concerns. Um, any kind of travel away from the church, away from my family, I don't want to do that. I, there were times when, when I took Damon Cup down to Uganda that first time to see if he would be interested in moving his family down there, which they have. Um, on our way back, you remember that volcano that kept exploding in Greenland or Iceland a number of years ago? We were coming from Uganda, and we got just to Amsterdam right as that volcano was exploding and uh, in, in the immediate vicinity there globally. And so when we landed, it really looked like to us for a little while, maybe we just got there early, but it sure looks like the airport is closed. We were the last flight in, and we were stuck, and we were exhausted, and we hadn't packed <laughs> for being stuck somewhere. And you know what? There were, there were times during that day or day and a half we were there that, that I was so exhausted. I remember we finally... Uh, we finally got a shuttle and went to a hotel. My wife had made us reservations for the hotel, and I was so tired. And the lady was saying, are you sure you have reservations here? And I said, let me check my email. It's right here. And I pulled it up on my email, and I said, oh, praise the Lord. Yes, ma'am, it's right here. And as I did, I touched the screen, and she went, where? And I looked, and it was gone. And Damon said, tell me you didn't just delete our reservation. <laughs> a bad situation got worse. But you know what? Damon wasn't down. Damon was up. Damon was sharp. And you know what? He was reminding me of the truth of Scripture. He was reminding me that the Good Shepherd is leading us wherever he will. It's always the right path. And it was reciprocal. I mean, there were, there were times when he was just down and kind of loopy because we were just tired. And you start making mistakes. That can cost you. Or in the ministry of the word, you know, you can start being sloppy. And if you don't have a brother there speaking the word of God to you, this is what true communion is about. It's ministering the word. The point of all of this is, and the point that Bonhoeffer is making is, we need one another. Yes, we need the written objective word. But sometimes my heart is so confused and so discouraged and so out of sorts, I can't remember John 3.16. But my wife can. Or some of you, my brothers here, can. And you minister the word. And where there is... Total confusion in my mind, there's clarity in yours. And the word spoken is exactly what I need. By the way, it may be helpful to point out here that in the New Testament, all of the major exhortations to holy living are in the plural. It is we and y'all. <laughs> um, you see that again and again, Romans 6. Uh, by the way, let me, Romans 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, just to name a few, but, but look at Acts, uh, Romans 12 for, with me for just a second. <clears throat> uh, here's just a classic example of how we, we take things and we make them personal when they're really plural. Um, Paul has just got done talking this, this very detailed, complex conversation about, or monologue about, um, how the Jews and the Gentiles are now one body. And we, you come to chapter 12, as if nothing was written before chapter 12, and here's what we read, and, and you've heard this, this verse used, for you personally, I'm sure. Therefore I urge you, 
individual, by the mercies of God, to present your body, it says bodies, but we like to change it to body, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and and acceptable and perfect. Do you realize that all of the pronouns here, all of them are plural, all of them. When he says you, it is not you as an individual, it's Louisiana you, right? It's y'all, it's Texas, it's Tennessee you, it's plural, it's y'all. All of you, you Jews and Gentiles, now are in one body. You need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind or there's going to be nothing but conflict. You are one in Christ. You are unified. You now have union with Christ. Now act like it. Be transformed until you are acting toward one another as if you were in perfect unity of mind. Um. Okay, so that's relationship, partnership, and communion. And number four, sharing material possessions. We're still talking about koinonia. If we just translate this fellowship, then it, it, it's confusing. It's, it's more than that. It's fellowship in terms of relationship with Christ, partnership with one another, communion in terms of relationships with each other, and now sharing material possessions. Again, Acts chapter 2. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. And... Uh, Trying to watch the time here. I don't want to cut into the preacher's time. <laughs> he, uh, he asked me not to. Okay. <laughs> 44 through 45. And uh, so we're kind of picking up where we left off. Everyone kept feeling, verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all and, and any, uh, uh, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And by the way, the house to house is really important. It shows up again in Acts chapter 20 ministering to one another in your homes. Now, granted, they didn't have church buildings. But house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. But what I want you to see here is that their, their koinonia in this passage was about sharing material possessions. The word, and by the way, we see this again in Romans 12 meeting one another's material needs. We see it in 2 Corinthians. Paul was taking an offering for the, the believers in Jerusalem. In Hebrews 13, 16, again, it's sharing material needs with one another. The word share in these passages, okay, so you see the English word share. The author wrote koinonia. Isn't that interesting? Share. This kind of koinonia is a kind of spiritual partnership. So we see the overlapping of these terms. Sharing possessions or assets within the body is a tangible recognition that we are all in objective community relationship with one another. And that when one member of the community suffers, we all suffer. And we all work together to alleviate that suffering. And by the way, uh, let me just say here by way of announcement here, I'm doing announcements now. Uh, this fits in with this perfectly because you just need to know that very frequently 
the elders, and I mentioned this, I think, last week, very frequently, the elders learn about material needs in the body of Christ here. And it is a big burden on our budget because we take money out of our budget and we, we meet material needs. And we're just having this conversation this week by email and then again this morning. And the elders asked me to tell you there are needs, there are financial, material needs in this body that you don't know about, and we really can't tell you what they are. Um, but they're there, and so if the Lord would put it on your heart to give financially to those needs, um, then our, the people who handle the money here, not me, praise the Lord, um, will make sure that th those funds go to the people who have need. This is koinonia. This is sharing. The kind of koinonia, this kind of koinonia is like a parent who meets the needs of his child. When, when a parent meets the material needs of his child, that's not benevolence. That's being a parent. You are in objective relationship. You have a responsibility toward one another. And similarly, in a partnership, the partners share in both sides, uh, both the income and the expenses, both the assets and the liabilities of the partnership. And Bridges points out that no one ever establishes a business partnership where one partner takes all the income and the other one pays all the bills. They share alike in both the positive and the negative. You get all of the other's assets and they get all of your liabilities. And you share. It should be the same way in the community of Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 13 and 14. Paul is talking about... Um, this offering that he was taking, and, and I kind of have to fly through this, but the point will be made, I think, that there might be equality. Paul um, was urging believers, listen to this, he was urging believers to have koinonia, fellowship with Christians that they had never met and probably never would ever meet. Fellowship with them. How? I don't even know who they are. I don't know where they live. Give. To meet their needs. Famine in Jerusalem, you all are prosperous. This isn't communism. This is Christianity. Nobody's forcing you. Do it out of the abundance of what God has given you, out of the abundance of your heart because you love God and you know that you are in communion in Christ with those people. They have need. You have abundance. Give of your abundance and even give out of your need. Well, those are the four categories. And let's just talk for a minute, I have, looks like I have two minutes, um, three minutes, all right, of application. So tonight, as you meet together in your small groups, and I hope you all will, let me encourage you to come to that home with a biblical understanding of what true fellowship is. Here are a few suggestions. First, remember your union in Christ Remind yourself that if the other person, the other people in your group are followers of Jesus Christ, then you already have fellowship with them objectively. Whether you have ever experienced sweet fellowship with them or not. And your small group, your first time meeting, might be a little bit clinical or robotic. I mean, it's, you don't maybe have the relationships there. Just know you are already in communion in Christ. If you are in Christ and they are in Christ, 
then you belong to each other and always have been ever since the day you first believed. And the reason you can have communion with the other members of your small group is because you are already in union with Christ. And, and beloved, this is going to be important when you find that there is someone in your group who might be a little difficult to get along with or high maintenance. There are people like that. Listen, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the person sitting next to you. Okay, so Bonhoeffer, here's what Bonhoeffer says. He who loves, okay, think about what is your image or your imagination? What do you think small group ought to look like? Okay. Bonhoeffer wrote, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. That's good. So number one, remind yourself of your union with Christ with these other people that you're going to meet with tonight. Number two, employ your spiritual gifts. Don't merely come to be a receiver of spiritual and relational blessing. Come with a view toward giving and ministering to others. Engage in personal ministry. Pray about how God might use your gifting to edify the small group of believers he has sovereignly put you in. And don't ask how can this small group benefit me? Ask, how can I benefit my small group? That sounded presidential, didn't it? <laughs> Remember, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to listen than to speak. And I say that to myself. I need to hear it every day. Come prepared to wash your brother's feet not simply to be enriched by them. And third, open yourself to true communion. In other words, share your life with the others in your group. What's the Lord teaching you through his word? What needs might others in the group pray for? How do your feet need to be washed for the advancement of your sanctification? Whose burden can you help bear? And how might you encourage others by reminding them of the promises of God's future grace? And number four, look for material needs. Perhaps there are financial needs that you can assist with in a discreet and meaningful way. Who needs a meal? Who needs a lawn mowed? Who needs a babysitter for a couple of hours? I can tell you there are young parents in this church who just get exhausted. And all you young parents think I'm talking to you right now. And I am. Some of you moms just feel like you can't, you can't endure another day of this. And if you're a pregnant mom with small children, you just, ah. People in your group, uh, you see people like that in your group? Make the time. Expend the effort. That would be true community. Who needs help with a project or a grocery store will run? Who needs a cup of coffee? I do. <laughs> or a note of encouragement? Just be aware of the needs around you and meet them if you can. Go in with, with, your, with your phone or with one of those little pads and just tell yourself, ask the Lord to help you. I'm not going to come out of here tonight without knowing how I can pray for a couple, at least a couple of people and what needs I might either pray for or materially meet and then get after it. You've got to be proactive in personal ministry. 
Father, we praise you for this morning, and we praise you for this time of, of study. You've been so kind to us in, in giving us one another. You've been infinitely kind to us in giving us Christ. We are in union with him. And it's because of that that we share communion with one another. Father, be glorified tonight as our groups meet for the first time. I pray that there would be sweet testimonies of your faithfulness and the love of Christ that is shed abroad in that group in everyone's hearts because of the ministry of the word and the ministry of life to life. Thank you, Father, for this time. I pray that you'd be glorified in the rest of our time together this morning as a church, and we praise you for the privilege of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.